This is Legal Design Podcast, and we are your hosts, Nina Toivonen and Henna Tolvanen. In this episode, we discuss what legal designers could learn from museums, especially those that are specialized in exhibitions about human rights. Our special guest is Dina Bailey, the CEO of Mountain Top Vision, a consulting firm that generates systemic change within organizations so that they can more positively impact their communities and the world. Dina also has wide experience from curating and creating immersive museum experiences, as she has worked as the inaugural director of educational strategies at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, United States. If you want to learn how to tell a great story like a museum guide, tune in to hear more. Welcome to Legal Design Podcast, Dina. What would you like to tell our listeners about yourself? I would like to say that I come from so many different places and times and movements. I used to be one who was just climbing a particular career ladder. And now I really feel like I am a constellation. And so I am an educator. I am a trainer. I am a facilitator. I am a listener. I am a therapist in some cases. And so all of those things make me unique and who I am, uh, but also makes Mountaintop Vision, my consulting firm, very unique and customized as well when we think about equity and inclusion out in the world. You have a very impressive and interesting background, Dina, and and work, work history as well in delivering information about civil and human rights in various forms, also by organizing exhibitions. And we've learned that you've also worked as a director of educational strategies at the National Center of Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. And I had had a chance to finally visit the center a couple of weeks ago. And I can say that it was a very educational, yet also an emotionally disturbing experience. And to the listeners who may not know, um, the Center of Civil and Human Rights is mainly about the history of racial segregation in US and the rise of the civil rights movement led by such icons as the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr in the 1950s and the 1960s, but also about the universal human rights movement and the protection of human rights through history. And the exhibition reminds that even though there has been a lot of progress in making people's lives more free and just, the dream of Martin Luther King had has not fully come true yet, unfortunately. Dina, In your experience, uh, how does building an exhibition about civil and human rights differ from building of other kinds of museum experiences? I'm sure many of us also our listeners have been to museums in general. Uh, So it would be interesting to hear in your view what are the differences in this respect? Are there some special targets or aims that um, are maybe supported in practice? Yes, of course. Thank you for that question. 
When I think about curating an exhibition rather than curating a program, I think about the fact that exhibitions need to last a very long time. So often exhibitions take three, at least three years, sometimes more in terms of conception all the way through that opening reception that folks go to. And then they're expected to last for a long time. Sometimes it ends up being seven years, sometimes 10 years, sometimes it might even be 20 years. And so when we curate an exhibition, we need to think about not only the audiences that will be coming from our local communities, from our region, from around the world, but also think about those future folks and what they might need in order to maintain relevance. I think that relevance is really important, recognizing what those universal values are, where the intersections of people's interests and needs might be. And so exhibitions need to really do that for a prolonged amount of time. I also think that as we curate exhibitions, we have to think about all of the different ways that people learn. Some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners or kinesthetic learners. And so how do we create opportunities um, in many different ways and with a lot of different content to help all of those learners? I think that's why you often see images and hear music and people talking and you can do interactive activities. That's really what we're trying to do with exhibitions. Programs are just one hit, right? It might be for 60 minutes, 90 minutes, a couple of hours, but it's one chance to kind of get people curious and start a ripple effect, I think. So that's how I see the two different. Yeah, that's good points. I have not really thought of that before. And also just learned recently that, um, heard actually from this, uh, from my neighbor, um, that it's actually only 25% of population that are going to museum. And it's usually the people who have been to museums as kids. So the thing you said about museums being like future oriented and like designed for the people who, who would come to the museum in the future too. It's, uh, it's an interesting aspect in also in that sense. Well, and one of the things that I would say as well, yes, often it starts with children and we do a lot of research about how effective curiosity can be in moving people forward in positive directions, right? To be leaders, to be community members, to be civically minded. Curiosity has a lot to do with that. And research shows perhaps not surprisingly, that as we grow older, we lose some of that curiosity, either because of peer pressure or work or overwhelm. And so one of the goals, I think, of many museums is to create spaces for curiosity, both for those children who are potentially coming on field trips or with family or friends or other groups, but also to create those spaces 
for adults as well, for grandparents, for cousins, whoever it might be, just to get a little bit of that curiosity back or encourage that. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned curiosity because that's, well, legal design is all about curiosity. We try to help people remember that it's okay to be curious and it's okay to learn about new things and it's okay to, well, not know everything, but still be curious to find answers to some problems. Well, um, if we go back to the museums just a bit, um, I think that people tend to have a high level of trust in museums. I mean, we all know that there's tons of research behind all the museums and all the exhibitions. And museums do play a role in societies. And to me, it seems that a museum is really the right place to make people more aware of the journey to social justice. And, uh, well, Nina just mentioned earlier that her visit to the National Center of Civil and Human Rights was an educational experience. But, uh, Dina, what kind of reaction do you wish the visitors to have? How does or does the exhibition support individuals to take actions towards more just societies? When I think about the reaction that I would like visitors to have, I think about the fact that things are much more complicated than we can even make in an exhibition space. So you have relatively a lot of space, depending on how large the museum is. You have people staying for a relatively long amount of time, right? Um, In comparison to websites and social media and articles and things like that. And yet we also don't have um, all of the time and all of the space and we can't hold people forever. And so when I think about reactions I wish that visitors would have, I really want them to understand that there is much more complexity and nuance to anything that we say, that there is not neutrality, right? So even though people trust museums, as I 100% believe that they should, I also want them to be critical thinkers in saying, who created this? Where where were they thinking about um, in terms of politics or social justice? What are their motivations? And so really being critical in a good way of all of those things. I also want people to find a connection. And so thinking about how people can see themselves in an exhibition, even if the exhibition isn't about them personally or whatever their group identity is. And so when I think about exhibitions supporting individuals to take action toward more social justice, I think about all of the ways during the US civil rights movement that people really um, gave of themselves. So some people were certainly marching, others were taking legal action, others were doing voter registration, others were supporting through carpools or printing out flyers. 
So I really want individuals to know that they can do little things, big things, anything to make a more just society. Oh, that's a really great uh, take from that. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And talking about making a museum experience personal, one of the most memorable experiences uh, in the Civil and Human Rights Center for me was the lunch table, which is an immersive multisensory experience about how it felt to peacefully protest against a segregation policy by sitting at a whites only restaurant a restaurant in, in the 1960s. And in that um, experience, I could hear people shouting straight to my ear and feel someone pushing and kicking my seat. And as, as you've told us, um, many museums these days and in general, they have the, the possibility to use different kind of multisensory elements in their exhibitions. Why do you think that is so? And what kind of other powerful means, particularly exhibitions can, can use as to communicate information? Like what different forms there are that you're aware of? And especially about human rights, if we, if we want to keep this, keep this viewpoint. Yes. I think that experiences like the lunch counter, the Mm -hmm. ones that are really immersive, are important because that's how people learn so much today with high tech experiences that you hear things and see things and feel things. So I think that those are really important as we move forward. And many museums have pushed towards that. That being said, um, because we have so much high-tech information out there in the world, there has also been a bit of a trend to go back to low-tech things. Mm -hmm. So thinking about interactive experiences where you put a puzzle together, perhaps, or where you flip up a panel, or where you move things around uh, physically or push a button to listen to something. Some of those more low tech things are coming back solely because we have so many high tech interactive experiences in our lives that that low tech actually grabs people's attention more perhaps than some of the other things. So I think about that. I also think about music and how much music really, really has influenced uh, people throughout so many different exhibitions, regardless of content. So that I think is really important. And then the power of play is something that we often talk about in museums. And so even if it is a really serious content message that we're putting forward, the idea of play and how we interact with each other and talk to each other even if we only met a few minutes ago, can be really, really influential. I think that is especially true for human rights. Again, because we're, we're sometimes talking about things that we have experienced, 
but often we're talking about things that have either taken place far from us or in a different generation or with a different focus. And so finding ways to connect is really, really important. Yeah. Hey, um, have you used storytelling? Because if I think of history, I remember certain people like Martin Luther King and Anne Frank and their stories. Is storytelling, well, do you use it in your museum? Yes, I think that storytelling is really important. And if we go back to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights here in Atlanta, one of the things that I think that they do really well is connect individual people's stories, thread that throughout all of the different experiences, um, and then connect that with overall what's been happening in the world, uh, both in yeah. the human rights gallery as well as the civil rights gallery. Uh, when we talk about programming, so outside of exhibitions, I think that storytelling happens in lectures, in videos, in dialogues. It is probably the main component, uh, even though we use different platforms when we think about programs. Um, Eugenia are also an expert in learning and education, being a, being a teacher from your background. Um, museums and exhibitions are special venues for learning. And as we know, I'm sure we all agree on this, that true change can only happen through the mechanism of, of learning which can also be very painful sometimes because you have to uh, kill your previous beliefs and thoughts about the subject. Uh, in your view, Dina, how important is the role of museums and exhibitions in making society a better place? Also, if we think of that only like one quarter of the population ever go to museums. And do you think that it's possible to change one's views by taking him or her to a museum um, experience? Yeah, so I tend to think of exhibitions and museums uh, and museum programs as opportunities to plant seeds or another way to say it might be to create disruption in people's lives. And so when I think of these experiences and bringing people into experiences, there are moments when people have an epiphany in the museum, right? Perhaps with that lunch counter experience. Yeah. But there are many more people who that plants a seed and then they want to read a book or they want to watch a movie or they want to talk with a grandparent about what they experienced. And so much more often, that's what I think about um, when I'm thinking about positively influencing people, that disruption of saying, let me clear out all of the white noise that you're hearing right now and just focus in on this thing. And then maybe tomorrow, maybe six months from now, maybe 10 years from now, it's going to be really influential, right? It'll encourage you to donate or um, to join a nonprofit or something like that. When I think about the number of people who come to museums, I think it is 
relatively low. And again, many people go in childhood and then lose interest or time or many other things as they become adults. But I would also like to encourage people to expand their definition of museum. So when we think about museums in the United States, they're educational in nature, they have a collection, right? And so that could be a zoo where we think about the animals as the collection or an aquarium or an arboretum. Uh, An art museum, certainly, children's museum, science center, history museum, national park site. And so as we're thinking about the fact that not so many people might go to the local history museum, perhaps, they might go hiking every day and see trail markers that Mm -hmm. have information and content. Um, And so I hope that people get more curious about the museums in their spaces, even if they don't look like traditional museums. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, If we continue about learning, uh, from the design perspective, the law and legal industry are concentrating too heavily on the past to find answers or solve problems instead of looking forward. But, it is important that we learn from history and not make the same mistakes again, especially when it comes to human rights and social justice. Do you, Dina, have any tips how the organizations could learn from the past, but in a sustainable way that all the decisions they make towards a better and social just future would, would consider the well-being of future generations as well? When I think about tips for organizations and how they can learn from the past in a way to influence decisions about the future, I really think about the museums or the spaces that make connections already between the past and the present and the future. And so when I think about that, I think about programs that I have done with police officers from the United States or ambassadors from around the world where they come to a particular museum and they learn something of the history, whether it is the U.S. Civil Rights Museum or it is about deforestation or something, they learn about the history first. And then they do simulations or they have discussions about what's happening in the present. And the idea of that then is that people will have practical knowledge about how these all tie together for the future. So that when something happens in the future, they will have that thread, right? They'll have a clearer understanding of what was happening in the past, how that has influenced the present, and then can act more quickly in the future. And so there are certainly institutions that lend themselves to that, teachers, police officers, I think lawyers often that go to museums particularly to say what happened in the past in this particular area, what's happening right now, and how can we predict what might happen in the future? I think that's really important. 
The other way is to go backward. And so I often think about people in their 20s, we'll say, who were either not alive uh, when 9-11 happened in the United States or were so young that they don't really have their own experience of it. And so often with young children and all the way up to some of these folks in their 20s, we try to start with the past and that seems so far away. 9-11 seems really far away to some folks. And so sometimes it's better to start in the present and work backwards, right? Um, And then think about the future. So when I'm thinking about practical tips, it's to figure out who your audience is so that we can either move backward or forward in time. And really it's just about making those connections or those threads between the past, the present and the future. Perfect tips. What has been uh, your favorite museum experience ever? Like what is one of the, the museum experiences that you still remember very well today? and is your favorite and maybe why? (laughs) (laughs) This is probably going to seem so strange, but (laughs) one of my favorite museum experiences would be um, going to Auschwitz and Birkenau. And the reason that I think that it is one of my favorite experiences is that I went with a group But the way that we ended up being split apart, I was with one other person um, and he was not an active participant in the tour, I will say. But that allowed me just to be on the tour really with the guide. And so it was the three of us and we walked around together and I could ask any question that came up and I didn't feel stupid for asking questions and our guide was really, really informed. And that for me was a moment where I said, no matter the content, if you can connect with someone in a way where they can ask um, vulnerable questions, they can feel like they really get a sense of what was happening in the space. And they are inspired because of this personal connection to move forward in in ways that make the world a better place. For me, that's the ultimate. And so even though it may seem strange to say Auschwitz was my favorite, it was my favorite for those reasons, those connections. And I still think about it about a decade after the experience. Yeah, good to hear that, that you can, there's so many things you can do uh, the museum exhibition differently and and really make um, a difference to someone. Um, And even though the topic might be hard and it's hard to understand, especially things that happened in Auschwitz and Birkenau, but yet you can have a positive experience because you feel comfortable enough to ask questions. Yeah. Um, As we've discussed, museums and other 
physical exhibitions can use elements in their displays that can help convey information in an immersive way. Do you think that there are uh, communication methods and or elements that only museums usually use, but which could be used more widely uh, elsewhere? For example, if one wants to give a presentation about civil and human rights, how to do it like a museum professional? Do you have any tips for us? When I think about museums and how they share information, I think that some of the best museum exhibitions have an arc. And so they start with a point of interest and draw you in, and they tell a little bit more about whatever the content information is. And then there is a moment where there is a critical piece, right? It could be the, the height of the historic moment. It could be the tipping point for something in science. Whatever it happens to be, there is this pinnacle. And then as we move down the other side of the arc, that really is encouraging people to think about um, how folks moved through the space, thinking about what other people did, well, whether they were activists or teachers or learners, whatever it happens to be, what decisions those people made. And then there is some call to action in encouraging people to think about what they can do and where they can personally be most influential. And so if I were to give advice to people in thinking about how to create that experience outside of a museum, I would think about an arc, how you draw people in, how you level them up to whatever your most critical or vulnerable moment is, and then how you walk them through the other side of that arc so that they can still see themselves and they feel like they know some responsibility, but also some inspiration for doing something further after the experience is over. So um, Dina, you already gave some tips for the organizations, but how about for private individuals? Because I think that um, while building for a more just society that will be diverse and inclusive, it feels sometimes a bit overwhelming for private individuals. And um, these kind of things might be hard to understand for us in the Nordic countries where things are supposedly okay. But um, do you have any tips? How could a single person promote social justice and human rights? Uh, what could Hena from Helsinki do, for example? When I think about individuals, I think about the fact that everyone has their own strengths and everyone has a way to participate in a movement, even if you are far away or you are young. When I used to give tours with young students, I said, you don't have to have a million dollars to donate to the museum or to the cause. You could write a book report about what you learned today so that you share it with your fellow classmates. 
um, people who are very involved in nonprofit organizations or affinity groups. How do you take something that you learn about social justice and incorporate that into experiences? Um, if you are the type of person who likes to have dinners and have people over, how do you create a way in which you can bring up these topics? Maybe you do a special dinner once a month just to talk about a social justice topic. All of that, I think, is really important for individuals to take something that you're comfortable with or that you know, and then sprinkle social justice throughout it. Because one of the things that I say is that we are all on our own individual journeys. And so rather than judging where someone else is on their journey, I need to think about my own. And sometimes I move very slowly and sometimes I move very quickly uh, depending on what else is happening in my life. But for me, the point is that I continue to move and I try not to make social justice an add-on, something that I am too tired or exhausted to do after the long day, but really make it part of my life so that I might talk to an Uber driver, or I might talk to one of the flight attendants on a plane. And that little bit, that moment of um, intensity can spark curiosity in others and have a really strong ripple effect. So that is what I would say for individuals. Find things that you like to do and then figure out how to incorporate that. It takes uh, additional knowledge. So thinking about the research, whether you like podcasts or videos or books, some type of knowledge increase, some type of emotional connection, and then some type of skill building, right? All of those things that you need to practice. That's perfect. And um, as we heard, small steps count because we have been learning during this podcast series uh, to think small, we don't have to build spaceships, but we have to start with small steps. And I liked what you said about the individual journeys. It really resonates and makes sense to that people also in general should start with themselves and think of what they can do in their daily lives and they can be smaller things instead of starting something big. Um, but it can evolve into something big at some point. Thank you, Dina, for being our podcast guest. This has been a very informative uh, and enjoyable discussion. I'm so glad that I could be a small part of this podcast series. I think it's really important. I was excited to be invited, and I hope that the words that I've shared today have some kind of ripple effect of their own into the future. Yeah, I'm sure. They sure will. <laughs> Thank you so much. I don't think I'll ever walk into a museum with the same vision that I had before. This was, this was really eye-opening for me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. Get to know us at legaldesignpodcast.com. 